thought a lot about sort of what the frame was that I wanted to try to put around this because the the wonderful challenge of talking with Rebecca Kamen is that you can go a thousand different directions. Oh, well, thank you. I, I take that as a compliment. It is. Oh, it absolutely, absolutely is. But I thought, you know, they, the intersection in my mind, the intersection of curiosity, creativity, and dyslexia was around seeing differently. And so that's kind of how I'm coming into that. Does that resonate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because as a dyslexic person, I'm a visual learner. I mean, I didn't realize that, that <laughs> I didn't know what neurodiversity was in the sixth grade. <laughs> I'm still not sure what it is because it's, it's very dynamic and fluid and changing like everything else in the universe. And it changes at every any one moment in time. But I have to tell you, because of becoming an advocate in this area, along with everything else that I'm trying to accomplish, I really feel it has profoundly helped others hold light. And to me, that's the greatest gift I get to do in my retirement is to have the time to not only create my artwork, but to hold that light for myself and for others and to figure out new ways of visualizing that. And that's what's so exciting. I mean, you know, I had no idea that artificial intelligence <laughs> would be such an incredible vehicle to mimic and share with others how I perceive the world. And to me, dyslexia is a superpower. <laughs> And that's the thing that when I go out into schools, especially with children and, you know, like junior high, high school students, I really want them to be aware of any learning difference is really a superpower because anyone can see the world in the same way, but you, you see it in an extraordinary way. Okay, so here's how I thought I was going to start this episode before Rebecca and I just, boom, hit the ground running. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. I usually end my shows with an analogy, but as I thought about today's guest and topic, analogies kept coming to mind. How is the sun like coronavirus? How is the periodic table like a garden? How is science like art? Well, geometry, for one, according to Rebecca Kamen, both art and science have geometry at their roots, and a propensity for close observation. An analogy or the comparison between two things, typically for the purpose of explanation or clarification, is a way of seeing things differently of sussing out an elemental truth from one thing that might help us appreciate something new about the other. Analogies are one of the many things artist and educator Rebecca Kamen does really well. You wouldn't know it given her accumulation of impressive academic credentials, but one thing she doesn't do really well is read. Only as an adult did she come to understand that she lives with dyslexia, a challenge in making the connection between the letters on a page and their meaning and sound challenge in reading. As we come to understand the human brain better, we're also coming to see that dyslexia, once roundly and uniformly regarded as a learning disability, is also a lens for seeing things differently. Think neurodivergent 
not disabled. So I suppose it's no surprise that Rebecca, the deeply curious and creative person who happens to have dyslexia, reached out to me with an offer to explore all three. This isn't our first rodeo. Rebecca joined me some time ago as her show Reveal, the Art of Reimagining Scientific Discovery, was opening at the American University Museum at the Katzen Arts Center. That show specifically addressed how curiosity shows up in her work and life and brain. It included a remarkable data visualization crafted by Dale Joe based on Rebecca's own thought patterns and curiosity. Now she's fresh off a show at the Aryan Press Gallery in San Francisco, where she was among nine artists with dyslexia who were invited to produce imaginative interpretations of learning and experiencing language and has another exhibit up through the end of the year at the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia called Pursuit and Persistence, 300 Years of Women in Science. Pursuit and persistence also seem like pretty good ways to describe Rebecca's devotion to research and the creative process. Her artwork is informed by wide-ranging investigations of cosmology, history, philosophy, and by connecting common threads that flow across various scientific fields to capture and reimagine what the scientist sees. She and they go looking for patterns. Patterns, she says, are critical for knowing. There's pure poetry in you having this exhibit at the American Philosophical Society right now, the nation's oldest learned society established by none other than Ben Franklin as a Philadelphian. I get all excited about those things. And the fact that you're there with a show about women in science is like the perfect summation of everything you are. So I just wanted to say congratulations on the show that you have up right now. Thank you. That means a great deal. So tell me how you landed in that particular spot, because you you have the most extraordinary trajectories. What got you to this one? Well, actually, I grew up in Philadelphia as a young child, and and seeds for my curiosity were planted at places like the University of Pennsylvania Archaeological Museum, the, uh, the Franklin Institute. My parents would take us to the symphony. And one of the things I love about Philadelphia as an adult is the richness. You know, you don't realize that growing up as a child. And so for me, my early seeds of curiosity were planted and cultivated in a lot of these museums and cultural places in the city of brotherly love. (laughs) What's interesting is that my art science practice really had its very beginnings in around 2008 when I was invited to come to the American Philosophical Society Library and was uh, to do an artist residency and was given basically carte blanche. Anything that I wanted to see, review, they would, you know, pull from their archives. And it was such an extraordinary experience because it was like being a kid in a candy store. You know, and they were so generous and so enthusiastic. And so things got pulled out from Ben Franklin and astronomy. And, you know, I'd find one thing and it would lead me to something else. The main reason they wanted me to work in the archives was the John Archibald Wheeler notebooks. And it was like, 
I don't know, 35 of these notebooks of a physicist who taught at Princeton. He was a colleague of Einstein's. And he's actually the person that coined the word dark matter and black holes. So he, he's pretty significant. Oh, okay. But I, I wasn't, my, my head wasn't there. And they kept saying, we really want you to see this collection. And then finally, about two or three weeks into my research, I came to my carol, my seating area, and there it was. <laughs> there it was a <laughs> Waiting for with you. all of them. <laughs> so I was about to plunge into the black hole of possibility. And I have to tell you, the Wheeler notebooks are probably the one thing that I revisit every couple years because they have such profound messages for me. And they have inspired and influenced ways of thinking, curiosity, as well as a lot of artwork, uh, you know, actual physical sculptures and larger installations. So uh, Wheeler, I feel like I channel Wheeler and his message. Just, just to give you an idea what how interesting these notebooks are, um, they have, you know, there'll be like 10 pages of handwritten notes because this is pre-computer or typed. And then uh, right after it would be three pages t- discussing a, a, a visit to a Chinese restaurant with colleagues with a little fortune cookie t- uh, fortune taped in it. So we get this really human side of Wheeler, not just, you know, as a curious person who really wanted to understand, like myself, how everything in the universe worked, but also a human person, yeah, you know, yeah. who wanted to share his excitement about who he was ha- dining with and the food that they had. So I found that to be really interesting. <laughs> and, and, you know, I remember Jill Bolte-Taylor once saying to me, where does a math problem get solved? Like, you can be standing in the shower, and that's where the math problem gets solved. You can be at the Chinese restaurant with your buddies, and that's where the problem gets solved. So, I mean, I see just the resonance of that in your work, too. I can completely understand why those notebooks would be so attractive to you, because you don't separate those things. You see the connections. You look for the patterns. You look for the relationships, right? That is the gift of dyslexia, is being a visual learner and the ability to see these profound connections that most people don't. And that's one of the things I've learned. So so define dyslexia. <laughs> I know, right? Go ahead. <laughs> um, well, in my case, it was challenging reading. Um, yeah. And I'll be real upfront with you. If you come to my home and studio, you might think I'm the library <laughs> because I have an extensive library. And when I read, I don't really read words. I'm seeing images, if that makes any sense. Uh, I was going to ask you about this because you are a voracious researcher. I mean, just voracious. And I thought, (laughs) how does one do that without some facility in reading? But you're saying that you're looking for different things in the literature. Oh my God. I, you know, the diagrams for me, I have this, well, what's interesting, let me just backtrack a little bit about Wheeler because he's, his notebooks just resonate with me so deeply. They're in three sections. Uh, first section is everything's about elements. Then 
The second section, everything's about fields. And then the third section, everything's about information. What was so extraordinary to me is that's the trajectory of my career because I started doing a project on the periodic table of elements. Then I did a project on black holes, that's fields, you know, and then the third one, information. Now this new work with artificial intelligence and the curiosity work, you know, data and visualizing data. And I thought, oh, I'm getting chills just thinking about the fact that Wheeler and I parallel, you know, our process of research and discovery. He unfortunately is deceased, but I have access to these beautiful books. And then one thing I just want to share with you, right when I was starting that journey, creating work for the American University show, I felt compelled to go down to visit the Wheeler notebooks. And so anyway, I got there and Patrick Spiro, who was director then, he said to me, you know, Rebecca, I have something that just came in to the Wheeler papers that I want you to be one of the first people to actually witness it and see it. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Just go in the library and it will magically appear. Oh, my. Oh, my. (laughs) Sure enough, I'm in the middle of my research and this beautiful gray, you know, archival box comes. I, I open it up. (laughs) And it's a book of Alice in Wonderland, but it's not just any copy of Alice in Wonderland. It was gifted to Wheeler on his 80th birthday. And when you open it up, it's signed by all these really famous physicists. Then I open another page and it's this beautiful engraving and it says, Curiositor curiositor. And I thought, oh my God, I'm falling. I continue to fall down the rabbit hole of possibility. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and I'm joined today by artist and educator, Rebecca Kamen. We're talking about seeing things differently with curiosity, creativity, and dyslexia. So what is it You describe yourself as neurodivergent. What is it that your neurodivergence makes possible that isn't possible for mere mortals? It's your superpower. (laughs) What does it do? In my case, I never even knew I had a problem. I just thought everyone processed information the way I did. But it wasn't until I was a college professor and I was having coffee with a, a friend of mine who taught special education at the University of Maryland. And she, she asked me how I got into art education. And so I told her my story. She said, Rebecca, I think you might be dyslexic. Everything you are describing. And I thought, really? I mean, <laughs> that explained a lot. And yeah. so that's when I, you know, being curious, then I thought, oh, wow, let me see what that's about. And that's what, when I was still teaching. And then, you know, when it became more fashionable, it seems like to be dyslexic, you know, and I think part of that is neuroscience and people realizing that not all students learn the same way. And, and having taught, you know, at, at Northern Virginia Community College for 35 years, I've certainly had my range of students, you know, because especially at a community college, which is great. It really adds to the richness of the audience. But it's, it's really been interesting to me because it's allowed me to be curious about 
the unique way in which I process information. And that really sort of happened at the same time I started working with Danny Bassett's group, you know, Complex Systems Lab. And so their research really dovetailed well and became a catalyst for me to explore this even more. Because one of the ways that I process information, this might sound really strange, I do PowerPoints. Because when I... when I, you know, have some kind of profound insight and I start seeing how things start connecting, I need a, I need to visualize it. I need to see it as a visual layout. I can't write it down. You know, I I do it sometimes, but that's just to spark pulling the images that I want to put together. And that's what Danny's group found so fascinating about, you know, the way I process information. And I'm actually one of their case studies, one of their first case studies with the knowledge networking is that's how I've processed information my whole life. I just never realized that it was a superpower. (laughs) So when you say you use PowerPoint, do you mean that you use it? It becomes kind of a scrapbook. It becomes your notebook diary. It's my diary. Yeah. And do you keep them in a kind of chronological order? Do you date them? I mean, how is it, how's your archivist going to make sense of this stuff? That's what I want to know. I don't know. And I hope, who knows what computer will be around when I move on to my next adventure, wherever that'll be. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that, especially being my age, but it's always a journey of discovery. And I love the fact that my feeling, at least the way my life works is I just show up. And because of the way my brain is wired and my openness to be curious and want to know how everything interconnects and everything works in the universe, I never run out of things because one thing always leads to another. And it's so fascinating because I just assume everyone has that gift, but they don't, you know, and and I do a lot of, I'm invited to do a lot of lectures uh, in scientific communities all over the world in all different fields. And one of my gifts, because I can talk to a neuroscientist about something in astrophysics that I feel has some kind of profound relationship in terms of the pattern or the dynamic, and they're fascinated. And that's why I think I always get invited back (laughs) because it enables them to see their world through a different lens. And I think that's one of the things that, to me, my gift of dyslexia has provided me. But why is that especially important? Why is it so important for people from one discipline to see their work through a different lens? What's What's the value to that? Well, to me, the value is discovery. Mm -hmm. I'll give you the perfect example. I had an aha moment um, right before the pandemic hit. Well, no, actually right after the pandemic hit of that Corona. And I was studying the sun's Corona. And then I thought, coronavirus, there's got to be some kind of reason why these two (laughs) dynamics, you know, are connected. What is it? And I'm going to use my artwork. And that's what I did. And I have to tell you, this Rocky Mountain Lab, which is part of NIH and Dr. Fauci's, you know, or it was part of his lab, the, the group of microscopists that I dealt with there were these wonderful women. And 
I said, look, I feel like I want to give back in some way, you know, for just your generosity and your lab's generosity to collaborate with me on this work. And I said, I'd like to do a lecture. And what was so meaningful to me at the end of my lecture, one of the young lab members, and he said, I don't have a question, I have a comment. I want to thank you for being so eloquent about the way you're able to explain something that I've been researching my whole life, that you really do see the poetry in science and you're able to communicate that. And I feel that part of that gift is that ability that I have of seeing that's very unique, you know, this neurodiverse way my brain happened to be wired, you know, when I came into the world. It was a little bit challenging when I was growing up because I couldn't get into college at first. But, you know, now it's people are very curious about how I see. Yeah, yeah. You've told me that story before, and I just love it because I think part of the answer to the question about why is it important to help people see things differently is that part of what you do is also help excite people about themselves in new ways. I mean, I just hear that over and over from the scientists. And that just can't be bad in any context, (laughs) but certainly not in science right now, or for people who feel as if they're processing the world differently and that that's a problem. That I think Mm -hmm. part of your gift is in exciting people about their ability to see things differently. Right, right. And to me, that is one of the major gifts of dyslexia. You know, I didn't elect to come into the world this way. And I think it was my struggle as, you know, a, a young student that really makes it feel very redemptive right now. And, and I can see the gift because I, I know the struggle, you know, yeah. at the beginning of my journey, I, I wasn't sure if I could get into college. And now when I stand in front of students and especially, you know, in uh, high school or junior high, and I say like some of you in the audience, you know, I struggle with reading. I still do, but let me show you what's possible when you look through a different lens. And they're so appreciative And the teachers are appreciative. And to me, that's part of the the advocacy that I want to do at this point in my career, along with obviously doing my artwork, is is to be able to hold that light for, you know, younger people that are coming up and, you know, confused and frustrated. Yeah, I love that. I love it. So in a minute, we're going to do the big jar of wannabe analogies. I know you. Oh, no. (laughs) No, no. I have I have seen you do this. It's going to be great. But I want to ask you a, a kind of a twist on it first is how is dyslexia like curiosity? Well, for me, um, it, it is a catalyst for always trying to know um, mm. what something is about. And so in the same way, curiosity is a light that, you know, sparks in us to make us understand things. I think dyslexia is the same way. I mean, in a way, now that I understand it, which is always <laughs> that helps. What, what's important to me is how to understand how things work. 
I embrace it. And, you know, now I love that I'm, I collaborate with scientists who can use technology and data visualization, like artificial intelligence, which I think on some realms is scary, but it's a way of showing how my brain mimic, it mimics how my brain processes information. When I take that out into uh, college campuses, um, students are in awe. They corner me at the end of my talk. <laughs> they don't let me go. They want to know more about it. And I love that. I mean, and I love the fact that I was collaborating with a postdoctoral student. Actually, at the time he was getting his doctorate degree. Now he is a postdoctorate. And now he and I are continuing to collaborate on projects, even though he's in California now, he's not at Penn anymore. But I think it challenges him, you know, uh -huh. and I think it, it enables him to view his research in a new way, just because I'm curious and ask questions. How can we do this? Very cool. Very cool. Okay. So now it's time for the okay. big jar of wannabe analogies. Okay. You know how this works. The big jar, slips of paper. I'm going to take one for you, one for me, one for the audience, and we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on these. Oh, interesting. Um, <laughs> interesting, good or bad? <laughs> well, I don't know. Okay, yours is motorcycle. How is curiosity like a motorcycle? Mine is fear, and I have one for the audience. So do you want to go first, or do you want me to go first? Um, you go first. Okay. How is curiosity like fear? Um, you know, they say the two can't really coexist, but I think they have some things in common. Um, one of those is that you can really feel yourself in the grip of both of them um, and that there's a physiological response that I think each of them has. And I think they're both great motivators. I'll say that's how fear is like curiosity. How is curiosity like a motorcycle? <laughs> well, to me, curiosity is full of possibilities. Not that I've ever really been on a motorcycle before, but there, to me, they're a fantasy vehicle. So I would imagine if I was on one, it would be moving very, very fast through space and time. And in that movement of moving so quickly, it reminds me of when I'm trying to process things when I'm in a state of curiosity. Ah. Um, I'm always, you know, propelling through very quickly through space and time. Very nice. I, I like that. And audience, <laughs> yours is raincoat. How is curiosity like a raincoat? Let us know. Social media, hashtag analogy. Well, Rebecca, holy cow. You know, I... Every time we get together to talk, I feel like I need to fasten my seatbelt and just enjoy <laughs> the ride. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, Lynn. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious, a show all about curiosity. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Thank you for joining us here today. You can find all my shows on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you'll follow me here, there, and on social media at Choose to be Curious. Don't forget to send us your raincoat analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my delightful guest, Rebecca Kamen. Links to her work, that show in Philadelphia, my earlier conversation, as well as great links on dyslexia on my website. Thanks, too, to Sean Ballack for our theme music. And this is The Summit by K2 via Blue Dot Sessions.
I hope you'll join us again next time. Until then, choose to be curious. Mm-hmm.